you know, I, I gotta give it to this timeline's writers. They did manage to find just the right blend of totally ridiculous absurdity to throw into the whole, you know, recent maybe World War Three story that's been going down. Yeah, I mean, it would make sense, you know, this, the suspicion I have for, you know, the writers of this timeline is, you know, given all the issues that Onion, the writers for Onion have been having with, uh, with the company that they work for, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, a number of Onion writers have gotten a job with uh, writing the timeline. It's, yeah, I, for those who don't know which particular like madness we're talking about, this is, of course, referring to Elon Musk challenging Vladimir Putin to a bout of single combat winner takes Ukraine wait 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 winner takes Ukraine so what you're telling me is that if Elon Musk if he were to win even if it's unlikely assuming that Putin agreed to the stool Elon Musk could take Ukraine that's it's way too much power well, like, for you know a, a rich industrialist it, from it's South not Africa. Explicit. It's like he's doing the whole, you know, if you win, you get Ukraine. If I win, then you fuck off thing. But you know, if we're at the level of oligarchs deciding the fate of nations in the most literally medieval way possible, then you know, it, it's kind of in the text, really. He's basically going, I have declared that Ukraine and the people of Ukraine are my vassal and under my protection against any other perfidious oligarchs who should dare trespass onto my domain. I swear to God, this is some Kaiserreich bullshit. I, I don't want to see, like, a, a mod based off of this timeline where Elon Musk is a warlord in Ukraine. Yeah, well, that would be better than, you know, one that's based off of the, so we clawed our way back from feudalism and the House of Musk rules over a large chunk of the Eurasian steppe because... Swear to God, we we better like get our hands away like a little bit from the from the weave of reality. Um, but uh, enough, you know, humor and jokes. Uh, you know, this is Chop Shop Economics. It's me, Harles, and this is my co-host, Docs. Mm-hmm. Reading this shit, so you don't have to. Oh boy. There's so we've been, you know, noticeably out for the last couple of weeks about when, you know, the whole high let's start World War Three almost by Putin going absolutely like, you know, balls to the walls invading Ukraine, uh, thinking he's going to pull off some nice quick victory and now is getting well, he's. Their troops are still advancing, but getting bogged down and not doing so hot and under horrific economic warfare. Um, and I say horrific because, oh boy, 
We've been like just just watching yeah. the things escalate for the last couple weeks going oh this is really going to suck for everybody. Yeah, the last time like Ru- like Russia, I mean, you know, shortly after the collapse of like the former USSR had a severe economic shock like this millions of Russians died. Like, a lot of people were immiserated, and, like, I mean, it's really horrific what's going on. This, in particular, is going to have blowback across the entire capitalist system. Like, this is the beginnings of a commodity and finance and asset shock of like we're gonna be comparing what we're talking about in a minute to like other major world historic events ones that may not have all necessarily happened in the past century because we have to stretch a bit to look for something that's a good unit of measure so you know this is not going to get into the particulars around the war or the umpteen million arguments that are raging on Twitter right now about the war. We are not war nerds. <laughs> We're not the war nerds pod. <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, when it comes to war, like, the there inherently is a fog of war, so try you know trying to you know give a precise shape of what's going on right now is basically equivalent to putting like a bunch of you know papers up on a cork board with like strings and stuff, and uh, that's basically what you get. It's not the most like this. This is a war that like in terms of like what happened, you know, like and you know its exact causes, you know everything the like the series of events this is something that in detail is going to be written about in history books for like decades and decades and decades but with that said um before the you know roller coaster car gets to the top of the hill but one thing we do feel confident to get into on this is before we then whip around to the patreon and the rest of the episode is getting into the most likely macroeconomic consequences based on facts as we know them right now, because sort of like, you know, at the beginning of COVID, even though the exact shape of the disaster was unclear, we were already like had a reasonable idea of what the broad curve of events was going to look like. So there's going to be kind of like that. So yeah, that Patreon so our Patreon is at patreon.com slash chop shop economics. Five a month gets you early uh, access to episodes, uh, specials, gets you on our Discord, and more. So please hop on over, throw a fiver in. That's like getting each of us a cup of coffee each month. Not even. So all that said ready so we uh put our hands in the weave of fate so that i guess you know all of us collectively in the future can do so um 
here at Chop Shock Economics. And now to get over the roller coaster hill. Yep. So when we're talking, you know, range of possibilities here, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, the comparisons here are like broad strokes and how we expect the coming, you know, mess that is going to be the next decade to unfold is going to be really hard to get in any more than these kind of broad brush patterns or likely trends. Yeah. We're throwing like a bunch of pain up on the canvas. Yeah, but this is stuff that, you know, is based on what we know of in the current state of play. And what that is, is at this point, the Russian economy has been effectively what I'm, I'm liking this term the best is being called deglobalized, meaning completely removed from the neoliberal capitalist world system like there are like a couple of countries that count as sort of being deglobalized in the sense of they're cut off by you know regimes of sanctions and stuff from the west and those would be like basically cuba iran uh venezuela and north korea um but they've all been in a state of you know being completely removed from the global system for a pretty considerable length of time or at least from the american aspects of it and have had a time to adapt and also you know didn't quite you know totally crash into it um they also weren't like you know one of the largest economies on the planet or the second largest exporter of raw commodities in the world um you know little things um so you know, the things that happened with the other places like Iran or Venezuela or Cuba are happening, but in Russia and at much greater scale. And also with the negative consequence of blowing out Russian exports of critical commodities. That includes things like oil, natural gas, nickel, um, grain. We'll get into that quite a bit later. And a few other, like, critical industrial metals, like, stuff like palladium and platinum. Like, this is, you know, they are, like, one-sixth of the Earth's landmass. They produce a lot of raw stuff that's necessary inputs for the economy as it currently works. Yeah, and there are very dramatic effects that happen when one-third of... Eurasia basically gets cut off from, you know, the global neoliberal capitalist capitalist system. Yeah. And so that's broadly speaking where things are at economically. Uh there have been some Russian counter sanctions, um, but really it's like confirming facts on the ground more than anything else. Like economically speaking, Russia, as it turns out, is how does not appear to have been at all prepared for the scale of sanctions that's been leveled on them. And um, honestly, here at Chop Shop, we were kind of shocked that the uh, powers of the European Union and the United States were willing to say, you know what, let's like throttle the shit out of the profit margin over this. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, like, there's this notion that, you know, 
some people have that, like, you know, the ruling class, the bourgeoisie, the bosses, like, you know, will have, like, a perfect unity that, you know, they'll do things in a very optimal way and that they'll never make mistakes. But, you know, a big thing that's, you know, important to keep in mind is that, one, mistakes that happen, but also the part of political economy is that, you know, like, political uh, effects will have a dramatic effect on, like, you know, the global economic system that, like, we are all embedded in. Like, you know, like, in terms of, like, the profit margins, like, oh, God, like, bleed on the floor, looking to die out. Um, but it's, you know, but it's oftentimes that, you know, there are sort of, like, basically, you know, factors of, you know, you know, like, a declining, like, Western, like, imperial core that, you know, is, like, you know, determined to like you know to fight more so and you know then there's other parts of this very complex world that we are in right now but uh, i mean there's yeah. more to get but into that's here. kind of like what our current state of play is um the only things that are really comforting as of time of recording is that both biden and the rest of nato high command have been incredibly emphatic on saying there will be none of this no-fly zone business. We are not going to do anything that involves getting into a shooting war with the Russian Federation, because they have nukes. Yeah, and like, despite like, you know, a room of White House journalists that have, you know, repeatedly hounded the, the set press secretary, not for necessarily a good reason, but, you know, at, you know, advocating like in hawkish ways for an increase in vol- an involvement that could lead to World War Three if they were listened to. Thankfully, so far, you know, the Biden administration is not listening to them in that sense. So, you know, we're not we're not that close to midnight. Yeah, thankfully. and so far, like, I mean, Putin is definitely doing awful things, but he hasn't done really really like you know start cracking out the chemical weapons or anything like that type shit that might lead to nuclear escalation so you know at least as far as we know circumstances on the ground are suggesting that we are not all about to disappear in a blinding flash of heat and pain so you know if we should be wrong about that we'll all be way too offline to care yeah, and if we're wrong about that, um, I recommend just getting some iodine pills ahead of time. Or, you know, if you're somewhere like me, just don't think about it, because <laughs> it, it, if it happens, you, you won't even notice it. But yeah, away from that, um, there is also, you know, and I know you can get into this more a bit, Harls. There's been a lot of like signs of domestic opposition and resistance. Whether that's enough to really like topple the government or halt the war remains to be seen. But that is also significant. Yeah. I mean, I can touch on that briefly sure. if you want. Um, so, um, there's a long tradition in the left, uh, called re- revolutionary defeatism. Um, it's, you know, something that, like, as we know it in its form today, it really came together, like, in the midst of, like, the response of the 
Este Pay, like in the very early days of the Este Pay, uh, actually it might have even been before the Este Pay like formed. Um, I, mean, I can't remember the exact date on that, but anyhow, um, basically there were a lot of leftists in Ger- Germany, like der- who during the Franco-Prussian War were extremely opposed uh, to the war because they saw this as something contrary to the international unity of like the global proletariat like they saw that like no matter who won uh prussia or uh france that the proletariat the workers would be immiserated that you know they would be like you know made poor by like the events of the war and there so there was a lot of opposition to this war by a lot of leftists organizing in germany at the time and what ended up happening was, like, when the war was over and Prussia had won that war, like, a lot of people realized that, you know, this, that, like, this strategy, the strategy of revolutionary defeatism was proven right. And what ended up happening is the German left grew a lot. Um, and, you know, this got, you know, repeated with, you know, later on, um, you know, in the days, you know, of, you know, World War One, and, you know, there were a lot of leftists all throughout Europe, including in Russia, who were opposed to the war, uh, and, you know, advocated for revolutionary defeatism for, you know, workers in different countries, like, organizing together, not, you know, via, like, you know, the, nas- the nations pushing them to fight, and, you know, unfortunately, in a lot of European socialist parties at the time, like, not enough parties won out in that struggle for revolutionary defeatism, but what, you know, the particular party that, you know, fully pressed for that strategy were the Bolsheviks. And what ended up happening as a result of, like, World War One, and, you know, was that, like, you know, this strategy for uh, revolutionary defeatism ended up growing the Bolsheviks, you know, by a huge amount until eventually, like, the Tsarist Empire was overthrown and, you know, a new social and economic order, like, came into power. So how that ties into nowadays is, like, you know, people who advocate for revolutionary defeatism, whether it's in Russia or in Ukraine or, you know, in different parts of the West, including the United States, they're not advocating for this camp or that camp or, you know, some third camp. What they're active, you know, advocating for is the international unity of, like, the workers, of the proletariats. And, you know, whether it's in Russia, where there's a lot of Russian leftists who are like, organizing against the war, and, you know, whether it's in Ukraine or other parts of the world, like in the West, um, you know, there's a lot of organizing going around on that. So, um, uh, Doc, you want to respond? Yeah, um, to, like, to jump off of that, like, the whole thing of immiseration is important to keep in mind, because as you're going to see as we go along, there's going to be plenty of misery to go around for everybody. And this is really, like, really the only people who are unambiguously the most in the right are the people that are, like, getting detained by Putin's security forces, um, and the people who are literally fighting for their homes and trying not to die. Um, Everything else, it's a fucking mess. Um, (laughs) But the economic side, which is something we can talk about with confidence, is its own mess. So we're going to start with the whole thing that is commodities, specifically oil and gas, as well as critical metals like nickel. 
So, first things first, and this is something that I'm sure folks listening to this podcast in particular are quite familiar with, something like 46% of the European Union's natural gas comes from Russia. And this is, like, essential for things like heating people's homes, cooking their food, and, like, in some places generating electricity. Like, if you were to, like, shut off the natural gas tomorrow, like, large chunks of Europe would freeze. Like, that's basically what the situation is. And that's one example of what it is we're talking about when we're talking about Russia's role as a commodity exporter. They are the second largest source of raw commodities in the global economy today. And that includes things like oil and natural gas. So, and this has also been like a significant factor in everything leading up to where we are right now was that Putin did have that sort of sort of Damocles over Europe and by extension, the rest of the world as like, you can say that like, you know, once like the absolute worst of the Elston years were over and uh, the Russian economy was in a place to actually, you know, be able to function within the rest of the globalized system, Russian commodities were pretty critical to giving neoliberalism the longevity that it's enjoyed. Yeah, like in the same way that um, Nixon's meeting with, you know, Mao in China uh, helped to stabilize the global capitalist system, uh, the, you know, the economic integration of the former USSR, especially Russia, into the globalist, the global capitalist system ended up like, you know, giving the like the current economic system this huge like you know boost of like you know survival and energy and you know it thrived for a while but like we are reaching the limits of that. Well, and like what on top of that is you know that would assume and we kind of were approaching that and this is what we argue for in our uh, material collapse thesis um, that the economic order is basically already trending due to deeper material factors towards a broader capitalist collapse that all assumed that a critical supplier of like, you know, 8% of the United States of America's oil consumption, which is a fairly significant slice um, (laughs) among other things, it would still be a, functioning component like that assumed no significant changes to the global economic order within the time frame that we're looking at um removing russia from the equation in less than the span of a week not even um that like nothing like Nothing like this has literally ever happened in economic history before, and this is playing out across all of, like, every fucking commodity that Russia's involved in. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I do think there are some parallels that we can, uh, you know, draw on and compare current events to. Um, 
So do we yeah, want to get into so, that? Like, one that comes to mind most immediately is the oil shocks of the 1970s, which is like particularly my jam, um, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, you write it. You wrote an entire thesis on it. I'm turning that yeah. into a book. So, <laughs> yeah, you have that jam stored in your fridge. Someone's actually going to publish that. Uh, there is less swearing, but. Um, Leaving that aside for a minute, the like the oil shocks in the 1970s were caused by, you know, basically tensions between uh, oil super majors and the oil exporting countries that became OPEX members, plus, you know, other shit like the Nixon shock and Bretton Woods falling apart. It's complicated. The short version is overnight in uh, at the like November 1973, the price of oil quadrupled, which sent like the price of the pump spiraling through the ceiling and because you know you need oil to move anything that meant the price of everything else went up and that kind of gives us a vague idea of what this would look of what these like commodity price shocks are likely to do and are kind of sort of already doing um but yeah. there is a but that there we are two discuss. buts um but number one is this is happening with multiple commodities at the same time. In the case of the oil shock, oil was the only, the specifically the oil embargo of 1973, oil from OPEC was the only commodity that was experiencing a disruption in supply and availability. And this caused other commodities to also experience increases in price. This is multiple critical commodities s- losing significant chunks of supply at the same time so we haven't even seen what the second order consequences of that are because the first order immediate boom is still hitting yeah the grenade is still blowing and the second but in all of this is where we should talk about the futures market yeah so Back when the oil shock happened, there was no futures market for oil. Part of that was because oil had been like sat bedrock steady with basically no change worth mentioning for the better part of two decades up until like the 1970s. So there wasn't really a particular need there was for as there was for pretty much every other commodity worth mentioning. So that meant that when you had changes in the price of oil at the point of production, that would translate very immediately through the supply chain. Um, so instead, what you're seeing, like when you're seeing the price of oil as it's like showing up right now, that spot price is what would be for oil that is contracted out under production today. Um, but that doesn't mean that oil is immediately showing up at the pump. It still has to be transported. The futures contract still has to be delivered. And basically all this other shit that delays the impact of these shortages, but it doesn't like, you know, remove it completely. It's more like throwing a rock, throwing multiple rocks into a pond and, you know, the waves echo out. Like it's not going to have instant, Effect, and that's also why you're not seeing instantaneous changes between price of the pump and price of oil. Um, now there is like a particular meme that's going around on Twitter that's like not wrong, but is 
you know, an important piece of this is price gouging and speculation. And, you know, we here at Chop Shop are going to be the first to say, yes, that is absolutely happening. That is always fucking happening. It's capitalism. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's like... It is capitalism that, you know, price gouging and profiteering is a major issue, but it doesn't appear out of nowhere. The only way that it likely appears is in two situations. If there is a if there is a commodity monopoly in place, so whoever is in charge whoever is in charge of that monopoly can price gouge to their heart's content. Uh, and or two, um there's blood in the water where there are actual material resource supply shortages. And what we are seeing here right now is there is a lot of blood in the water and the sharks are coming. Like there, you can't pull the kind of like price speculation that's definitely happening, which by the way, to give an example of what it is we're talking about, that's part of what happened with the London metals exchange. Cause for folks who are really way commodity brained like we are there you probably saw the news from a few days back i think it was like last week as of time of recording that the london medical exchange ceased all trading of nickel which by the way you need for things like engines batteries and a lot of other things that are sort of taken for granted in modern life Every single component of the device that you are probably listening to this podcast on, you know, don't drop that iPhone. Yeah, be careful with your with your electronics. And if there are any repairs or upgrades that you've been planning to do, uh, we recommend that you do them sooner but than yeah, so later. What happened um, London but, uh, was the price of nickel, which, as we've mentioned, is rather important um shot to well literally the highest ever in recorded history by a very large margin like i i encourage you to look up the chart it is literally some wily e. coyote shit it's like here's nickel going splat into a cliff face of the price just went fuck you and your mother and your grandmother Going back 10 generations. And probably your father and your grandfather and subsequently so on and so on. It was pretty terrifying. And a significant part of that was because Russian commodities were being cut off. However, specifically in the case of what was happening in the London Metals Exchange was there was also, for those who are, you know, hedge fund and trader nerds like us, Go, something going on called a short squeeze, which was basically where a bunch of traders had short positions that they had against nickel and were now being put into a bind because, you know, they want that to pay out. And that sort of is encouraging other people to pick up commodities and contracts and stuff in nickel. So, you know, you get just all these different incentives that come together of uh, there's already a shortage and then fucking commodity brokers do what they do. Like, come on. Why anyone trusted them with 
handling this shit is beyond me. Like, these are the sort of people that if you leave them alone with, like, a baby for five minutes, they're going to already be looking for investors for a new form of alternative veal. So... Like, why anyone expected them to behave responsibly... Yeah, it's, you know, contrary to, like, the image that, you know, a movie, like, say, the, you know, the short has brought up, like, you know, and just, uh, you know, very quickly, like, touch on those events, like, the short traders and that, you know, that movie was based on, like, they did not have, like, good beneficial motives, like, they, that, those short trades had extremely detrimental effects on, like, you know, on the 2000 re- recession that made it worse than, you know, it was going to be oh, even yeah. before so then. this, like, so, like, we're kind of yammering on about this a bit, but this sort of makes the point about what it is we're talking about when we're saying, yes, there's price gouging and speculation and the various assorted stupid bullshit that neoliberal capitalism does to prices. And there genuinely is fuckery afoot in the supply chain and the availability of these goods that is making it easy for people to get away with this kind of bullshit. Yeah, basically. Like, I remember, um, you know, uh, you know, an episode or a few ago, um, I believe it was Doc who made the prediction that there would be a quarter one, like, cr- crash or something that happened. And initially, I thought that was... I I thought it was a possibility, but I did not think it was a possibility in the sense that we are seeing it today. But I do have to say, like, I ate my words. I mean, and like on the show uh, multiple times before, we've talked about how with the Great Depression, there were two, there were two like initial sparks to it. Um, where one, you had like the first ma- big major crash that everybody thinks about, but what what's often called a dead cat bounce, but so everyone thought that like uh, things had economically improved, but then there was a second spark, and it initiated the Great Depression and how like the horrific, horrific effect that it had, you know, on the United States and other parts of the world. Yeah, that was the that was the Smoot-Hawley tariff, if I remember right. You know, when the United States said, "Hey, let's get into a trade war with Europe." Wow, the economy's I wonder if there's some parallels dying. to this today. <sighs> Total coincidence, I'm sure, has no but bearing whatsoever. Yeah, we had our, you know, we um, had our second spark. The dead cat has bounced, and now it's falling. Oh yeah, because this is like legit real economy shit, and it doesn't get realer than food. And this is the part where we bring up that. Russia and Ukraine are two of the largest exporters of grain in the world. You know, yes. that thing that makes bread. And yeah, a, bread-like stuff. A staple stuff. that is, you know, de facto, like, you know, in economic terms, it's inelastic. Like, people need to be able to eat bread. Like, to have, like, a staple like this in order to be able to, you know survive like the price of you know 
bred rising yeah. in this way has often in like in the historical past has often preceded like tremendous societal upheavals and revolts and uprisings and revolutions. Oh yeah. And what's especially fun with when we're talking about just like the price of wheat is that we're already seeing consequences. There are multiple members, for example, of Unisor, the uh, South American trade bloc, who have announced export bans on agricultural products, specifically because of the increases in price that are coming due to, you know, Russian and Ukrainian grain exports being massively disrupted. Russian ones by, you know, the massive sanctions and Ukrainian ones by being stuck under the tread of Russian tanks. The little things. And Egypt has most recently followed suit in instituting export bans on agricultural commodities. So even though there are, you know, examples of countries that are doing stuff to mitigate what this will do, what this is going to do across the board, no matter what, is push the price of food. Yeah, there is a very specific thing that happens when, you know, families, when parents can't feed their children. And... That is the sort of thing that leads to revolutions happening. It's some, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, our fingers are going to snap and then, you know, the whole world will be waving a red flag. But, you know, we're going in that direction. Yeah, like this is definitely like, you know, signs of social upheaval, because whenever you fuck with the price of food, see, you know, the entire Arab Spring as one example, that's fairly recent, shit tends to get squiffy. And what adds to that even more is, again, remember that whole thing about Russia as a major oil exporter? Well, when you fuck with oil... You also not- fuck with food. Because, you know, mm-hmm. those tractors need fuel. And a lot of those fertilizers are made from yeah. like, petroleum. Yeah, like the big thing with, like, you know, with uh, oil, with petroleum, with other uh, fossil fuel-derived products is that they are, you know, they are economic uh, commodity resource inputs that go into the majority of, like, what it takes to sustain the global economy. Yeah, like, this is the stuff that is so bedrock level in the current economic order that fucking with any of it is going to mean everything else gets fucked around with. And particularly that grain exports are being disrupted is... That, that's not, not good. No, not good. Like, people not being able to eat, bad things happen. That's like, that That should not be a yeah, controversial like, statement to make. Like, it, it, it should not be radical to go, if you cannot feed people, yeah, then bad yeah. things happen. Like, it's not, like, this is both a, like, a per- <laughs> this is both descriptive and, like, prescriptive. Like, this is some. This is a tendency that has happened repeatedly for a long time. When people can't feed themselves, when they can't feed like their friends, their family, um, like 
when there's that inability to do that, when they see their community, the communities of people around them dying, like, this is a sort of grief that drives people to, like, overthrow entire social, economic, and political orders of the day. I mean, like, if we can't manage the thing that was the entire reason to do this thing called sedentary uh, society, you know, and beer, I think there's persuasive evidence that beer might have, you know, probably tipped the balance. You know, it was probably 60-40 beer and agriculture. Um, Because, you know, beer's hard to argue with. But um, anyway, digressing from the beer thesis of history, you know this whole being able to have food thing was sort of why we did this. So when you're threatening like the thing that was why we stopped just going, Hey, let's just like wander around and forage shit and do whatever and not have bosses. Cause everybody's got to work that, you know, people yeah. tend to get upset. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, that's kind of pushing like, a primal we're not button just there. Seeing, like, you know, like various different countries banning exports on food. I mean, we're starting to see that with like metals too. I mean, I, we mentioned Egypt earlier in like the show, but Egypt has also recently put in a ban on metal exports too. And I would not be shocked if this is something that we see happen in many other countries throughout the world. Oh yeah. Like this is just, I think my favorite thing that's come out of all this, other than the next thing that we're going to get into, which is just the most, like, do-a-flip shit imaginable, was an article in Business Insider, which I think at this point everybody's probably at least seen the meme of it, at least everybody who, like, listens to our podcast anyway, of someone writing for Business Insider super you know capitalist trade paper saying you know maybe price controls aren't such a bad idea yeah that is like yeah we're that that's like such high heresy it's for like these if people. you were to walk into even. a christian church and you just saw like you know a priest or a minister or somebody like who is a, who is a deeply devout christian just take a bible and burn it Or, you know, take the baby Jesus out of the nativity scene and punt him across the, you know, inside of the church. Either or. You know, this is like, just so for them, someone to actually, pub, for Business Insider to actually, like, run this was pretty, like, I'm what? You guys must really be, in, like, yeah, afraid. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely. <laughs> and they should be. <gasps> They should be. <laughs> Who was that? Do we have a new co-host, Doc? That's <gasps> <sighs> just the voice that comes out for what the hell is going on financially in Russia. Because, oh boy. <laughs> that, that shit's really yeah, fun. Like, the last time we saw it, it, a, a, a severe economic shock like this in Russia to this degree was back in the ni- the 90s, you know, in like, you know, the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And 
subsequently, because of the economic policies of like the shock of the shock doctrine that were pushed upon Russia by the Imperial West, like millions and millions of Russians, especially like immiserated workers, died. And we're starting to see very, very similar trends. But, you know, worse. Like, I mean, I want to preface all of what has been happening in relation to Russia and finance in the last three weeks with this is why I'm out of tequila. Just to start things off on the right foot. Russia is a significant holder of foreign debt, as are Russian corporations. The total size of Russia's sovereign debt, which means debt that's held by people outside of Russia, is around 40 billion U.S. dollars. And there's probably another 40 or 50 billion floating around that is directly debt held on Russian corporations. This is, of course, talking about pre- Putin drop-kicking capitalism out a window prices. So, you know, watch this space carefully. Since the Russian economy has been cut off from global finance, has been frozen out from many of their uh, overseas assets, and means to be able to pay for things like these debts, they have been running into problems and doing things like taking dollars out of domestic accounts held by Russian citizens and replacing them with rubles and other just, you know, totally not crazy ass, literally Nazi bullshit from the thirties to keep the German economy from dropping dead due to the stress of reality. Yeah. I mean, I would, kind of crap. I would make like is really Ponzi schemish. Like this is really just, Yeah, like, I would make a note of caution here that in terms of, like, the political and economic dynamics that we're seeing, particularly from, like, the Russian state right now, like, well, I mean, it's definitely horrific, and we should oppose the, we should oppose the war, um, like, we have to, like, keep in mind that, like, you know, contrary to what many liberal talking heads have said, like, you know, Putin and Hitler and, you know, Nazi Germany and, you know, Ru- the Russian state as it is today are not comparable in the exact same ways. Like, is the Russian state, like, going into this very, like, reactionary period? Yes, but I do want to note that, like, you know, the shape of, like, you know, of politics and ec- economics is different. Like, you know, just as, like, a Jewish person, like, I get really uncomfortable when, like, people call like Putin Hitler or compare like Russia to Nazi Germany because yes very fucked up things are happening right now but like we need to like keep like you know the historical differences in mind well in this particular case uh, literally this was a thing that the Nazis did to pay for war rearmament it was they seized hard currency out of domestic accounts that were held within the third reich to pay for overseas imports and basically by the time of the anschluss the entire german economy was on the brink of total meltdown and if they didn't loot austria's like gold reserves then they would have just fucking died so you know (laughs) this is that but faster and more yeah 
with no commodity exports to bring in hard currency or outside technology or any of that other shit. Um, yeah, and I mean, I do want to make, I do want to make a, a note of caution like, that it is very possible that you know other countries, um, you know, look, like, let's say India may end up like being sort of like you know a you know a release valve in terms of like Russian commodities, like you know flowing to the rest of the world and not necessarily just Russia, but other places. But I mean. That's not like gonna completely solve the like economic problems that we're seeing. Oh yeah, especially like the financial problems of that. Like when you're at the point of you're having to loot domestic accounts for dollars to pay your sovereign debts, you're in really big trouble. And like the major ratings agencies have all effectively like concluded that Russia is expected to completely default on their sovereign debts by April 15th. This is as per Moody's and Fitch's uh, agencies. And there's also a lot of other companies that are expecting to see like payments that are supposed to be coming due from major Russian interests are probably going to bounce. And like, yeah, like the last time that Russia had a sovereign debt default, which is a bit different from the default they had in, like, 1998, was when the Bolsheviks repudiated the debt of the Tsarist state. Just straight up said, yep, nope, not our problem. Y'all can deal with this. Like, that didn't, like, totally blow out the rest of the capitalist economy, but it probably had a lot to do with why American capital was absolutely vital to making the economy. Yeah, the I mean that that had all. a shockwave of basically causing like the biggest like empire in the world at the time, the British Empire. That you know, it that like you know, if it wasn't for that shockwave, likely would have you know, unfortunately, probably would have lasted longer than it did. And thankfully, you know, most of the British Empire is gone today, and uh, you know, the United Kingdom is very much of a suggestion right now. But, like, these are the sort of, like, huge shockwaves that, like, ra- rapidly change the rest of the world. Like, you know, we like when we look in sort of, like, the finance market and the way that, like, uh, that Russian money is just so interconnected with so much of the rest of the world, like, whether you're talking about real estate or, you know, various different corporations or, like many different things like yeah or my personal favorite the fun thing called we don't know how much in the way of securities and derivatives have been spun off of the known russian foreign debts probably 10 times as much so you know there's probably anywhere between 500 billion and a trillion dollars worth of crazy ass mm-hmm. Wall Street bullshit floating around. Like we are very That's likely to see trouble. like various like part, you know, sectors of the economy, various corporations that you know were seeing, you know, for years and years as like, you know, financially sustainable, you know, had very good bookkeeping, everything like seemed like it was in order and we're gonna likely gonna find out that you know a lot of these places were likely you know very tied up with various like connections to Russian money, whether it's like real estate or you know ties to like different corporations 
or, you know, derivatives, as Doc just mentioned, like, this is gonna, you know, right now, we're about to deal with, like, known unknowns. Yeah, and, and most of this, by the way, before anyone starts going, ha ha, let's start doing some Russia baiting, um, most of these, like, connections are because that's just the way capitalism works. If there's capital, if there's somebody with money or commodities to meet a need or whatever, then some motherfucker is going to find a way to fill that need, especially in our iteration of capitalism that yeah. has very few barriers and it's not to just stopping Russia that does that. this so, like know. the united states does this various european countries do this china does this egypt does this so many different countries yeah everybody does this like this is like that's that's just capitalism being a capitalism so you know it's not the problem is not that it's russian capital the problem is that it's a lot of capital that's about to go bye poof adios <sighs> and yeah that's that happening all at once creates so we should probably disasters. talk about the um the, the you know the, like the federation council oh, authorizing yeah. a central bank shutdown of all banking activity and russia seizing foreign owned properties Oh, yeah, so that's just shit that's going to make all this go faster, really. Like, because that means anyone who is, like, so Putin has been authorizing seizing um, the, like, wholesale nationalization of any company that is at least 25% foreign-owned or more. Um, great, you get the offices, you get the stuff. That doesn't mean the money's going to show up, or the foreign workers who probably were making it work are going to stay put. Um problems but it does mean in terms of like a lot of you know foreign workers who were (laughs) doing this sort of stuff in russia um a lot of them sent like remittances back to like their home countries and like this had a huge like economic sustaining effect on like you know various countries whether it was like you know uh, of kazakhstan or like other countries within central asia like this has you know been a major economic effect but with the you know the global economic like sanction slash counter sanction fight that we're entering into right now a lot of these workers are returning home to like the countries that they came from and like those remittances that were coming into like those countries before are no longer coming And that means anyone they're trading with, which is not just Russia, is also going to start eating it, which does include places like China. So, yeah, we are in that place now of all the material conditions are pointing to very rapid catastrophe. Mm-hmm. Before in we uh, dive places. into the um, meat of the thesis that we are building here, um, we should probably just, as an aside, mention that. Um, you know, like COVID-19, like this ongoing plague has not gone away. I mean, there's been recent news within Chinese factories that, you know, they've been shut down in order to prevent the spread of like COVID-19. Yeah, like in CNN. So that's a factor to keep in mind. But broad strokes just from the fallout of this, minimum, 
globalization, just-in-time logistics, all that stuff is basically dead. Uh, maximum? Uh, well, let... Just... Yeah. Like, we'll stop th- there's a spectrum <laughs> we can talk about here, and we meant to get it earlier on in this episode, but I think this is a good place to talk about, um, you know, of, com- you know, comparing what we're entering into. Um, it could be a greater depression... It could be comparable to the 1859 cotton famine, um, and Doc can explain that in a bit. Or it could rhyme a lot, you know, at its maximum with the Bronze Age collapse. Do you want to start with the, you know, Greater Depression comparison? Well, that's basically, you know, what our material collapse thesis assumed was going to be the likely outcome of something that looks like the Great Depression of large-scale unemployment, um, layoffs, um, general misery and all that. Um, But something resembling capitalism is still at least kind of functional at some level. Um, So, you know, Great Depression, but worse. It's not pretty. You're, we're talking things like one in three people yeah. not having jobs like in a meaningful y- way. The United States know. and its peoples got so close to having another revolution again. And if it was not for our FDR, who, contrary to what, you know, uh, right-wing conservatives today think, like, FDR was a huge advocate and proponent of capitalism. And, like, a lot of the reforms that he made at the time were not to sort of, you know transition towards socialism or or communism or whatever he was trying to preserve capitalism and you know it was basically focusing more on like long-term optimization rather than the local optimization that a lot of like different corporations were doing before that point um if but yeah so that's like what we'd be yeah um the middle end of the the middle part of the spectrum is a would be the 1859 cotton famine and this is where we both talk about the american civil war a little bit and sort of the interactions that that had with the british empire at this time um well basically like the short version is the loss of american cotton sort of like you know the loss of russian commodities blew a gigantic hole in everything related to the cotton trade so you saw escalations of um, cultivation in Egypt and in India and other places that were under the sway of the British Empire to some degree or another. Um, but, you know, ultimately it all ended in what's often called the Long Depression. <laughs> it's funny how this keeps coming up. Um, <laughs> of the 1870s, um, which lasted for something like a decade and a half after cotton prices just completely and the thing fell is, apart. What, you know, um, how this is different, how that was different like compared to today is it's not it's not cotton that is the major issue this time as com- as a resource as a commodity but it's many different commodities it's not just it's not like it's not like you know the oil shock in the 70s um you know where where with oil or you know cotton with the 1859 cotton famine like this is a vast array of many different commodities and resources that are just intensifying and you know the second order effects that we're going to see are going to be likely dramatic though we can't you know say the exact shape um this is probably where we should talk about the maximum end of what um 
the effects of this could be, which um, this is where I would like to compare it to the Bronze Age collapse. Um, over the years, a lot of historians have made speculation uh, and research into like to try to figure out how the Bronze Age collapse happened. You know, some people would say, oh, there were environments. So what, what was, was it? it? Oh, yeah. What was the Bronze what Age collapse? What was the Bronze Age collapse? Um, the Bronze Age collapse was where all the different palace economies throughout uh, West Asia, uh, North Africa, and Europe centered primarily around the Mediterranean basin that, you know, were all very deeply interconnected with each other and these vast, like, trade networks that, you know, went, you know, from Phoenicia to Cornwall and back. That entire, like economic system like that network collapsed you know due to environmental factors um due to economic factors due to technological factors and what ended up happening was there was a, a huge tremendous social economic and political reorganization that just radically changed the way of life for so many people you know around the mediterranean basin Wasn't that like the end of the Middle Kingdom of Egypt or something like that? Like, serious enough that we're like, this is a different mode of society? Marxist historiography? Yeah. The people who um, do that thing? Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, yeah, like yeah. Egyptologists. Um, um, but yeah, like, this is, um, yeah. like, you know, many historians and researchers have said, you know, this or that was the, co- the cause. Um, but there is a concept from... Uh, you know, a complex system science I'd like to bring into this that, you know, I think is the more accurate judgment of, you know, what happened in the Bronze Age collapse. Uh, It's basically described as a systems collapse, where you'll get these very complex systems that will emerge over time, and they will build, and like, they will, like, cohere in different ways. And like, some areas where there's very tight connections, some areas with moderate connections, areas where there's loose connections. And like this, you know, these complex systems are engines that grow and grow and grow. But what can happen is, you know, to, you know, talk about a cascading systems collapse is if you take a temple and, you know, you know, systematically take out each pillar one by one and by one, the the weight of the ceiling will put more and more pressure on each remaining pillar until that entire temple collapses. This is a similar case that we saw in the Bronze Age collapse. There's this huge systems collapse that happened due to various factors, not just like, you know, environmental uh, ones, but also like technological, like, um, you know, iron was starting to like, you know, become a very big thing. Like, you know, ways of working iron spread around and had this huge effect on, you know, how warfare was waged. So the sort of equilibrium that existed before in the Mediterranean basin just changed dramatically. And a lot of sort of the resource inputs that sustained all of these different palace economies dried up and there was just a dramatic reorganization. But how that compares to what we are looking at today is we are seeing a similar effect I mean, both just in terms of like how warfare has been changing, but also in terms of like how energy is done, like the, you know, fossil fuel industry, petro capital has, you know, been in this process of collapse, like the renewable energy industry and that 
and its technological infrastructure has been growing more and more. And, you know, with all of these like different like climate effects, these effects from the plague, um, these effects from all these different supply chain disruptions, you know, we're starting to see something that, you know, if this continues to its maximum is going to resemble the Bronze Age collapse. And I do want to caution this is like, I don't mean collapse in the, you know, the Reddit, you know, subreddit thing of you know the collapse thing like this is not some like you know big collapse of the entire world system and everyone will like die and you know we're gonna well most people will die and you know we'll all be like you know tribes and you know some like fallout style thing like i want to caution that is not what we are saying what we are what we are implying what could happen is that we'll see a very we'll see a similar shift of like a massive economic social and political reorganization and yeah, like, you know, the entire, like, you know, that could, you know, and there are a lot of steps between here and there that would have to be taken to like, per, like make resource shortages worse and consistently make things worse. Like, and, and that's important to keep in mind when we're talking about this range that, you know, the high end is still really bad. Um, and the low end is terrible. Um, like, it, we could definitely bet that, you know, resource extraction is going to get all kinds of kick in the pants all over the place. Recycling technology probably will. You know, those are all things that one can extrapolate outwards. But for the immediate term, yeah, buckle up. Yeah. So, the, the I mean, I think gone. the big question is, like, <laughs> what does this mean? Like, what are... You know, what are things that, you know, what are actions that people can take in the midst of this in order to, you know, drive towards, you know, the one day where we live under a world not like run by capitalism, but by a more ecological and, you know, socialist framework? I mean, that's the question of like, how do we get there? Um, or even just getting through what's likely to kick up in the near term uh organize talk to your communities all that mutual aid shit you've hopefully already been doing yeah like you're gonna my... need it survival yeah, is yeah, gonna precisely. be like thing. you know my big recommendations is like on a, like a on a political level like i highly recommend that you know people like get involved with like revolutionary defeatist methods of you know calling for an end of you know of war that hurts the proletariat i mean as the slogan goes no war but the class war um it's gonna take time to coordinate and organize all of this but i have faith in you know the capabilities of all of us um i highly recommend you know joining like you know, organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America and other leftist organizations. Like, I highly recommend getting involved in, like, organizing tenant unions and tenant councils. Like, you know, uh, there's a lot of mutual aid network going on, work going on. I recommend people going in, you know, disaster, like, socialist disaster relief work going on. Like, there's a lot of possibilities. The only way that we will get through this together is by collectively, like, increasing our power and pushing against the capitalist system and it's gonna be a rough transition but i have faith in all of us that you know we can build a better world together so yeah along the way 
make sure people have some idea of what's coming and know that this isn't because of, you know, anything the people of Russia did. This was because very powerful people got their dicks out and shoved them into sausage grinders. Except those dicks are us. So, you know, organize, remember who did this, and good luck. This has been Chop Shop. Reading this really fun shit so and... you do not have to. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't want to bake your brain on shit like financial news. That that shit's just it, uh, pain and weird. It is the mind killer, but you know, as I I have a almost PhD yeah, that says yeah. I'm allowed to call it black but, magic. You know, this is Chop Shop Economics. You know, we are here for you in these troubled times and. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Solidarity forever, everybody. Because <laughs> the sanity's already gone. This is why I'm Harles. <laughs> Goodbye, Good everybody. Luck.